this Tuesday evening session. And this is a very, very special guest we have this evening. And uh, uh, if I may just briefly introduce Radhanath Swami to you. Um, Radhanath Swami is the author of a book called The Journey Home, which is publishing in 10 languages so far, and there are others in the pipeline. And it is the spiritual journey book, I believe, for the 21st century and beyond. It's a very heartful, soulful account of uh, the journey to God. And um, we thought we would uh, welcome Radhanath Swami this evening by following the usual protocol, which is a kirtan or a brief chant that Maharaj would kindly lead us in that. And then um, Radhanath Swami will speak with us for a few minutes. And then we'll do a Q&A. We thought this time, this is Radhanath Swami's third visit here to Jivamukhi. And we thought this time we might leave space for more of an interaction with you all. So you're going to have a chance to ask your questions. Uh, we'll make that a big part of our discussion here this evening. Would you please join me in welcoming His Holiness Radhanath Swami to Jiva?
Radhanath Swami is very kind. As an old friend, he'll sometimes ask me, what do I think a good topic would be <laughs> for him to talk about? And um, yeah, if we could get a mic on the stand, that would be great. No problem. We'll make do with this for now. Is it loud enough? Can you hear this? Yes. No? There's a lot of room on this side of the room. Maybe we can make a pathway for Maybe some of you would like to move down to the cooler end of the room. It's by the window. Yeah, this has air conditioning. <laughs> so the question that we came up with was, why is, it, why is New York a good place to become self-realized? How's that? Is that okay? Or we'll start there. <laughs> New York, good, good place to become spiritually fulfilled. Uh, is New York a good place for self-realization? situation with character and integrity, 
He thanked, he thanked God. He remembered the Lord. And in every situation, like a lotus flower in a muddy pond, he remained peaceful and pure. And in the end, the Lord, Ari, in the form of Narasimha, appeared in an extraordinary way to give him shelter, to remove all obstacles, and asked Prahlad, any benediction you like, I will give you. <clears throat> Prahlad said that many yogis and sages and rishis, they go to the forests of the Himalayas for the purpose of self-realization. To escape from the dualities and the passions and the greeds and the envies and the angers and all that other stuff in the towns and cities. But as for me, the benediction I want, let me be in the cities. Because that's where I can do the greatest service. Where there's the greatest need, there's the greatest opportunity to serve. In the bhakti tradition, our aspiration is for seva. Seva means unselfish service, without ego, without selfish agendas. Sri Chaitanya offered a beautiful prayer Na dhanam na janam na sundarim kavitam bhajagadisha kamaye mama janmani janmani shuri bhavadar bhakti rohaita kitvai His aspiration I do not want to accumulate great wealth I do not want to enjoy sensual pleasures with the opposite sex or any other situation necessarily I do not desire fame or prestige. I don't even desire liberation from suffering. I simply desire to serve. To be the servant of the servant of your servants, my Lord. Unconditioned. This is a universal principle. In giving, we receive. To the degree we really connect with God, with the Divine, with Krishna, within our heart, to that degree, our love for God manifests compassion to other living beings. And the more we see need, the more we are humbled to the call of service, saying, And as far as I could see, there is so much need in New York City. There is so much greed and envy and arrogance and pride and what to speak of distraction. People are constantly being bombarded with weapons of mass distraction. <laughs> So what a wonderful place to be, to share something beautiful, to share something wonderful. And in sharing something wonderful, we, we get such immense benefit. Actually, my, 
my guru Dave, Srila Prabhupada, he was living in Vrindavan for about eight years in the holiest part of Vrindavan. And for devotees of Krishna, Vrindavan is the holiest place in the entire world. When I first went there, I somehow or other, without any intention, <clears throat> it was orchestrated by a higher power that I accidentally landed Vrindavan. And it was Krishna's birthday, Janmashtami. And there was about a million people in one place. So I understood this is a very special place. And then after Janmashtami, everybody goes back to wherever they're from. And in those days, it was a very quiet forest with sages and rishis and yogis and devotees who just totally absorbed in bhakti, prayer, chanting God's names, seva. The Prabhupada lived in a very quiet place called Seva Kunj. Seva Kunj is the exact place in Vrindavan where Radha, Krishna, and Gopis have their rasa lila, which is considered the highest expression of pure un un unalloyed love between God and the soul. And he left that place to come on a cargo ship to New York City. Why? <laughs> and he was 70 years old. And on the cargo ship, who was called the Jala Duta, which means the water messenger, <clears throat> It was an old cargo ship. He had two heart attacks, severe seasickness. He arrived in New York. He had no <coughs> dollars, no exchangeable currency. And he didn't know anyone. Sometimes he lived in the Bowery. Sometimes he lived on the Lower East Side. Sometimes he was invited a little later to the Anandashram. All of his friends and brothers and sisters in India were calling, why are you there? Come back. You have a beautiful little home in Vrindavan, in the forest, the holiest forest of all holy places. And he considered, this is the best place. Because where there's the greatest need, there's the greatest opportunity to serve. And we really Yoga means to connect with our spiritual essence. And to the degree we really connect, we want to share that connection with others. Not that we want to. Srila Prabhupada was asked when he came, we have our own religions here. Why have you come? He said, I have not come to convert. I have come to enlighten. We have all forgotten that our spiritual essence, the Atma, is such an ananda, eternal, full of knowledge, full of bliss. And the inherent nature of the Atma is praying. This means that love of God, love of Krishna, the all-beautiful, all-sweet, all-wonderful object of love is within all of us. 
you simply have to wake up, uncover it from all the clouds of illusion that are, that are obscuring the real happiness that we're looking for. <clears throat> There's a beautiful prayer. What is the goal of religion? What is the goal of chanting God's names? This kirtan. The real blessing and treasure that can be achieved through this kirtan or japa is anandam bodhimaradanam pratipadam purnamrita which means to experience the happiness that we're always looking for. But we're just looking for it in places where everything is perishable, everything is uncertain, and everything is destined to be taken away from us. But that lasting, true happiness that we're seeking, it is eternal. It is our nature. It is within us. To connect with that is the higher taste. And when we experience that higher taste, we want to share it with people. New York City is such a special place to share. Just listen to the background music. <laughs> people are struggling so much. It's not just the poor, it's the rich. Because somehow or other, I sometimes I would simple village people because we have hospitals in Bombay and we go to these simple little villages and we're with people. I was with one lady. I need to tell you this story because it's a very far place away from the culture of New York. It's just outside of a village called Badarsana in the Vrindavan area. And this Vrindavan area it is the eternal home of Radha, the supreme feminine aspect of the divine of God. And in that area surrounding it, people are so poor materially. They live in very, very um, small villages, many without electricity, without running water, without any type of sewage systems. They just go out in the field, which is quite organic. <laughs> and the greatest reason for blindness is untreated cataracts, because they have no money to treat cataracts. So our hospital from Bombay, from Mumbai, we go there, we have camps every day, actually. We have a large camp once a, once a year. We're about 200 devotees from Mumbai go as volunteers. And they treat several thousand people. And I was going through it. This was just in February. And there was one, you know, people are waiting for their surgeries after they get their checkups. And there was one really, really old lady. She didn't speak any English. She was tiny. I'm pretty tiny, actually. <laughs> she was tiny even next to me. I think I'm 5'6", last I checked. Um, 
was probably about four foot eight or something like that. Very small lady. And she was 85 years old. But she looked at least 125. <laughs> she was really, she has been beaten by time severely. Her skin was so deeply creviced with wrinkles, and she was wearing just rags. She was really poor. So much of her hair was not there. She just fell out. But she looked like such a desperate old lady, and she had this gigantic, heavy nose ring on. And she's just sitting on the ground. And she's sitting with all these other ladies. We're all together, sitting, you know, kind of like all of you. <laughs> Not so well dressed or anything. <laughs> and I, I just felt something for her. So I sat next to her, somebody was translating, I asked her about herself. And she told me a little of her story. She said, her husband died. And she said she had four children, and they all died. And her brother died. She had no relatives. She had no family. And this all happened within a few years. And because she's illiterate, she can't read, she can't write, she can't get a job, she's old, she's in her 80s. She just lived in a little hut, and they took her hut away. They literally kicked her out of her home, and she was totally homeless. And the winters are brutally cold there. The summers are brutally hot there. The rainy seasons could be very, very wet. And she was just living under trees. She had nothing. And she lost everyone within the last couple of years. It's a pretty desperate situation. And she said she had two giant cataracts in her eyes and she could hardly see. And she told me how happy she was, how grateful she was. She said she prayed to Radha. In that area of Vrindavan, the Supreme Lord is Radha. <laughs> Be feminine aspect of Krishna. She said, I only have one prayer to Radha and Krishna. My prayer has been for the last year, just take away one of my cataracts so that I can once again make bread for Radha. So she could make rotis. Roti is a very, very simple, primitive, unleavened bread. Just take away my cataracts so I can make rotis and offer them to Radha. She said, that's all I want in my life, and I'll be happy. And she, she started embracing me. I'm a Swami, you know, but usually ladies don't embrace Swamis. <laughs> <laughs> 
But even all these swamis that were there, they didn't mind this old lady embracing for whatever reason. <laughs> she was so happy. She said, you people are going to take away my cataract so my prayer can be fulfilled. That's all I want in life. And then she started singing. And she started dancing. A really mystical dance. I'm not going to try to imitate that. She was going like this. She was really dancing. And she got about 15 other ladies who were with her. They got up and they all knew the same song. And they were all singing. And they were all dancing. And then one of my friends. Have you, have you met Shantas? The kirtan singer? He was with his mother, Gloria. Don't tell him I heard tell me the story. <laughs> but she's a very, very affluent, dignified, aristocratic, wonderful lady who was she was a secretary of state of the state of Connecticut. She was in Jimmy Carter's cabinet and she has pictures in her house with all the last ten presidents. She's a very dignified lady. And she happened to be there visiting her son. And they came to see me, and this lady went up to Gloria and grabbed her <laughs> and started making <laughs> in her own Hindi language. She said, dance, dance, dance. And Gloria started dancing with her, these two 85-year-old ladies. <laughs> An American politician, aristocrat, Jewish mother, and this this totally forsaken, forlorn, um, poverty-stricken lady who just sleeps on the gutter side. And the amazing thing, she was so illuminating. She was illuminating the entire atmosphere with bliss, with happiness. She was so grateful. I can make rotis again and offer them to run around me. Sometimes I'm with middle class people, and sometimes I'm with millionaires, and sometimes I'm with billionaires. But I don't see that happiness as this little lady who got her cataract removed. And the doctors told me as she was leaving the eye can, she was dancing. <laughs> she's not insane, she's just happy. <laughs> She's more sane than most people, actually. <laughs> she's really grounded. What's really important? What is real wealth? When my beloved Gurudev was here, he had nothing. And he was feeling such sympathy for the people who were even driving out by with limousines. He was not thinking, I wish I had that. He was thinking, I wish they had the love and the bliss that's in, that God has given me. Let me share it. And there are so many illusions and so many things going on here. It's actually a very good impetus to take shelter of our spiritual practices. Sometimes when we're in a holy place, we take it for granted. 
place where there's so much going on, so many people distracted in so many ways, and so much suffering, that we really understand how valuable what we have is. So the perfect place for our spiritual life is wherever we are. And that very, very uniquely includes New York City. I'm going to tell a little story. You may have heard it before. Please bear with me. It's the story of Vishayadani Bhartante Nirahara Siddhi Hiradasa Bhartram Rasopyasna Bhartrisvali Bhartante. This is a verse from Bhagavad Gita. It tells that it's very, very difficult to control the mind and senses. And yoga is very much about harmonizing the mind, the senses, with the Atma, with the Dharma of the Sun. The mind is sometimes compared to a monkey. How many of you have been to India? How many of you have met a monkey? <laughs> face to face, personally. Not just seeing them on the branches. I'm going to tell you the story of somebody who met a monkey. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> about my father. <laughs> they couldn't figure out what I was doing with my life. <laughs> because there, my mother was born and raised in Chicago, the Midwest. And believe it or not, you know, when you're brought up in the Midwest, everything is very relative. We think New York people have an accent. California people have accent. People in the South have an accent, but Midwest we're the only ones who speak naturally. We don't have an <laughs> She was born and raised in Chicago. She was middle class mother. Later on, when we were four years old, we moved to a little village suburb called Highland Park. And it was a very kind of peaceful place. When I was 19, I went to India. And then I came back some years later. And it was a culture shock for them to see me. If you think it's a culture shock to go to a foreign land, it's a bigger culture shock when your son comes back from a foreign land. <laughs> the way I do it. Because I was a completely transformed person. As a college student going for a summer vacation to Europe and came back a very hardcore, serious, seasoned ascetic <laughs> from a Hindu tradition. And they never heard the word Krishna in their life. I remember, do you know what Arti is? Does everyone know? I remember I was sleeping on the patio of their apartment on the fifth floor. Just coming because I wouldn't sleep on a 
The carpet was too much sensual enjoyment for me. <laughs> <laughs> to speak of bed. Bed, for me, that is mild. That's like sleeping in the lap of illusion. <laughs> I spent years living in caves and riverbanks and under trees. And I thought that's just the life. And I came home, I forgot. I come home and they said, we have a bed for you. <laughs> My mother put a sheet on the carpet, and I, the carpet, that is sensual enjoyment. <laughs> so there was just this little slab of cement that came out from one of their doors, which made like a fifth-story little patio. You know how they had that? So I on the cement. And they looked at me like, you know, son, what happened to you? <laughs> believe it. 
my mother and father, I was giving lectures, and it's the first time they ever came to lectures. In America, they thought it was too weird. But they <laughs> <laughs> all these people like them were coming to the lectures. So they came and they were weeping and <coughs> They were seeing the happiest moments of their life. They were so proud. And one day, I was leading a kirtan, and I saw my mother dancing <laughs> with an old lady. <laughs> And I saw my father surrounded by about 30 orphan children dancing with them. Did you ever see those Salvador Dali surrealistic paintings? There's like a hand coming out of the ground. Things that aren't supposed to be there are there. I thought this was like a surrealistic experience. So anyways, should I continue? Yes. <laughs> I wanted to take my mother and father sightseeing. So we went to Alafanta, which is an island. You take a boat. It's about a 45-minute boat ride from Mumbai. You board the boat at the gateway of India, the most famous landmark of Mumbai, right across the street from the Taj Mahal Hotel. And they were taking photos and they were ready, oh, this is so nice. And we got in this boat, and the boat was pretty primitive. That was like a preview of what was to come. <laughs> so we came off the boat. And the feature of Elefante is there's a cave with a very, very ancient carving of Shiva. I was taking them to the cave, historic site. And we're walking through a forest pathway. And the first obstacle came when these mosquitoes attacked my parents. <laughs> my parents said, there's mosquitoes biting me. You might get malaria. Could we get malaria? You know, I have, you know, the Ten Commandments, you have to honor your mother and father, and you're not supposed to lie, so <laughs> I said, well, I, it's not likely, but you could. <laughs> so they were pretty scared. <laughs> but then after a few minutes, the mosquitoes went away. I guess, you know, they got their quota of blood. <laughs> And the birds are singing, thinking, isn't this peaceful? And say, actually it is. And about a moment later, a monkey, a male monkey, with brown fur, pink face, and green eyes, jumped right in front of my mother. <laughs> Looked at her with such anchor, like he wanted to eat her. <laughs> then he grabbed her purse. <laughs> and my mother screamed. <laughs> and my father said, now this is 1989, but there was no e-tickets or anything like that. <laughs> and India was really, really bureaucratic in those days, especially. Still is, but then 
anything you want to get done there in those days, it's at least a hundred times more complicated than here. So my father said, both of our passports, visas, all of our money, all of our cash, all of our credit cards, and our airline tickets are in that one place. <laughs> Everything valuable that we brought to India is in that place. <laughs> and the monkey is taking the break. <laughs> My father's giving me a little philosophical awakening. And meanwhile, my mother's having a tug of war with the monkey. <laughs> he's pulling. She's pulling. He's pulling. She's pulling. He's pulling. She's pulling. And the monkey was really serious. He looked at my mother with such wrath in his eyes and pulled his, his lips up so much that his sharp, sparkling fangs were revealed. He was showing her his teeth. And then, with this glance of devastation, he, he jumped right into my mother's face. And then he, when he was jumping, he got right up to my mother's face and I asked him, 
and the Swami gave me a bakshish, a donation of a banana. And he told me I had to pay one rupee, <laughs> which is overcharged. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a rupee. So we were borrowed. I would say, just give me a banana. Just please give me. It's going like this. And he was getting angry with me. He said, one rupee, one rupee. So sometimes in times of emergency, we have to do things. <laughs> I stole the banana. <laughs> I just took it and ran away. <laughs> he was screaming. And he called other fruit vendors and they started screaming. They were and I just, you know, I ran away. And I, and I ran to the tree. He was up there. He was opening the purse. He's already started chewing on one of the passports. And I said another little prayer. Now I know this is a weird story, but it's going to have a purport at the end. So I showed him the banana, and he actually took interest. And by Krishna's grace. I'm not good at throwing, because you know, I, I haven't thrown anything since Little League when I was about eight years old or something. But I, I just looked up and I threw the banana. I aimed and I threw. And because I wasn't such a good thrower, it was a little distance away from me. But that served according to my purpose, because the monkey had to jump to get the banana and as he jumped, he dropped the purse. The purse came down. And there was hardly even a tooth mark in the passport. And I took the purse and I closed it. And the monkey got the banana. And I brought it back to my mother and father. I can honestly tell you this. This may just melt your hearts. In my whole life, never saw my mother and father so proud of me. <laughs> my mother embraced me, and my father embraced me, and they had tears in their eyes, and, they, and my father said, son, you are so intelligent. <laughs>
relatives, friends, and the family. They were calling me when I came to America about six months later. And they were saying, we heard all about how you did that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> now I'm going to give you the lesson. The mind is like a monkey. It always wants to go to places that can really get us in trouble. Have any of you ever had that experience? <laughs> <laughs> the mind is like a monkey. It's jumping here and there, angering, lamenting. Sometimes we're happy, sometimes we're distressed. Honor, dishonor, pleasure, pain, success, failure, victory, defeat, heat, cold. Sometimes we're tired. So many things are inflicting. And even if everything's perfect, if we're in good health and it's a nice day and everything seems to be going right, still any little thing can make the mind go off and just start worrying and get frustrated and miserable. The mind is, I think Milton said this, the mind is a thing that can make heaven into hell or hell into heaven. to control the mind by giving the mind a higher experience. Just like that monkey. He was causing a lot of trouble. But when he had a banana, he was happy and he stopped causing any trouble to him. <laughs> that banana is the sweetness. In the path of bhakti, pray. Love of God. Save us. The joy of service to God, the joy of service to others, the joy of sharing the wonderful treasure of, of devotion that we have discovered within our heart. Not as a matter of egoism to defeat others, but to share joy. That is the best way to give satisfaction to the monkey of mind. so many wonderful opportunities here in New York City. Thank you very much. In our Bhakti path, Kalerto Samidira Janasteik Mahankuna Kirtana Deva Krishna Stambho Disankapara Praji this Kali Yuga, it's a time in the universal seasons where there is such a rise in quarrel and hypocrisy. But there's one special, special blessing in this age. That this Kirtan, this Harinam, this chanting of the names of the Lord, can give us the taste of the highest, sweetest, most satisfying form of liberation. Pray of God. And it is something we can do anywhere, everywhere. And now, Mr. Joshua Green, Yogesh Maharaji, please. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
you like tendencies, you know, <laughs> acted very appropriately. You can ask for some questions. Would anyone like to ask any questions? Raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question of Radhanath Swami. There's a question here. Yes, sir, please. Thank you. Should I stand? Sure. This concerning the Gita. Can you speak a little louder? This concerning the Gita, whatever Gita. About like cats mixture. Krishna cautioning, lecturing Arjuna against. Cats, cats mixture. What? 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 yoga teacher, Raghunath, many of you may know him, he's from New York. He brought a group of yoga students for a tour of India. And he came to Mumbai. And they were staying in our temple. And then we visited another temple. And, from, and what happened is one of his students, who's also from New York, upstate New York, she fell down some stairs and broke her foot. So we have a hospital. So we brought her to the hospital and they had to put a cast on her because it was completely broken. So she, you know, she was laying in a bed with a cast. She was kind of feeling sad. And I went up, I went to visit her. And I told her that Today, you have been officially um, accepted in the Indian caste system. <laughs> it was on her foot, I said, but unfortunately, it's a lower caste. <laughs> explains that there's a system called Varna Ashram, which is meant to elevate everybody to a liberated state. It's a system where everyone honors each other as divine servants of the Lord, and everyone has responsibilities according to their natures. You know, within Within every society, there are scholars and teachers and priests, and there are administrators and you know police, firemen, and there's also um, you know there's business people and there's farmers and there's traders and there's bankers and there's also people who do you know labor. 
It's in every society. So the Gita is explaining according to one's nature how to perform your occupation in such a way with such integrity, with such character that we can become liberated. But, but Krishna tells in the Gita it has nothing to do with birth. It says, Chatur Varna Mayastrasam Gunakama Vibhakasha. According to one's natural qualities and according to what we really are inspired and like to do. <laughs> Guna and karma. Accordingly, we should perform our work in selfless divine service. And the explanation is given of the body. <laughs> Within this human body, we have so many different parts. And each one has a different color, a different shape, and a different function. And one part can't necessarily do what another part can do. Just like my nose. My nose can smell. But my nose can't hear. But my ears can't smell. And my tongue cannot do the work of my knees. And my knees cannot do the work of my kidneys. My kidneys are a different color, a different shape, a different place in the body, and has a very different function. And my kidneys can't do the work of my heart. And my heart can't do the work of my brain. And my brain can't do the work of my toes. <laughs> Last year, I broke one of my toes. I was at this Boston Kirtan Festival. And I was walking, and I somehow, by God's grace, I kicked something. I say God's grace because there's an incredible story that comes after this, but I'll tell you <laughs> that in another class. <laughs> but anyways, this little toe was so big and black and blue and swollen, and I was there, and all these people saw it, and they were bringing ice for it. These nice ladies were bringing, you know, different cells. And I was thinking, this toe has been doing work for me for 61 years, and this is the first time anyone paid attention to it. <laughs> so in that sense, it's a nice thing. Anyways, every part of the body has a different function. <laughs> Society is a body. You know, we have mothers and we have fathers and we have teachers and we have industrialists and we have farmers and we have workers and we have taxi drivers and bus drivers and we have mayors and we have presidents and we have so many different types of occupations. A healthy social body is like a healthy body. It's not that one part of, it's not that the hand is saying, knees, you are lower than me, stay down. No, there's no exploitation. There's respect for the function that everyone's offering to everyone else. That's respect, that's honor, that's love. And when all of us can honor the divinity the part of God that is in every heart and honor the different functions that every one of us have and be harmonized through that respect, then the whole social body is healthy, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But when the different components of the body are at odds with each other, the body is diseased. 
So the perverted conception of the caste system, which in many times is prevalent in India, is completely averse to the spirit of the Varnashram that is actually presented in the Vedas. It's actually a beautiful way of honoring, respecting, harmonizing, and enlightening one another. That's the system that's taught in the Gita. And people have very much misused it. Just like throughout religious history, around the world, people misuse certain statements for their own to support our ego as a justification to exploit. <coughs> but it's actually something very beautiful, very healing, very harmonizing, and very enlightening. Yes? Does someone have another question that's simpler than analysis of the caste system in India? <laughs> Over here? If I understood the question correctly, you're, you're asking, um, or perhaps you were acknowledging what an accomplishment it is for a non-Indian-born teacher to achieve a place of such respect and following by people from India. Is that correct? But I was curious as to how you got there, because being Indian, I know how difficult that is. And, you know, not just with uh, Swamiji's success has not just been uh, with charities, but with all levels of society. So I was just curious from his perspective how he kind of achieved that uh, sense of, uh, I would say, acceptance as a beautiful love. You know, rather than putting Radhanath Swami on the spot by explaining why he's achieved and how he's achieved the position that he's achieved, maybe I'll take the initiative here. Um, and of course, there's a lot of love, so it's not exactly an, an objective. Eat the banana. Eat the banana. <laughs> there are very, very few people who reach a place of complete and utter unselfishness, where their only motive really is the well-being and happiness of others. And at that place, those differences of where they come from and their background, that, that falls away. That's been my experience of Radhanath Swami. He has no personal interests in anything that he does. And I think that's probably why he's loved wherever he goes. So there, you can have your banana. <laughs> What is the purpose of regret and how we move through that? 
question. I have no idea why anyone would want to follow me. <laughs> <laughs> to serve in whatever way I'm supposed to serve. And by the grace of my Guru Dev, Srila Prabhupada, somehow or other, if he can manifest through a little person like me, that is his greatness. Um, regret. Everything potentially has its positive purpose or negative purpose. <clears throat> and this is really a very important part of what yoga is. Yoga is the science, the art of, of reuniting our body-mind words with our atma, with our eternal soul. And <clears throat> It teaches us how to see each situation and utilize both the things in this physical world as well as the emotions of the mental world for the purpose of growing spiritually. So regret when we make a mistake or Whatever. You know, sometimes regret is natural, it's human. You know, I've seen it within my own life, I've seen it in almost every because I when people have regrets, that's when they usually like to talk to swamis. Things <laughs> 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 are really going good. They're usually too busy for us. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I need these bananas. <laughs> when a loved one dies, it's a traumatic thing, and we usually start thinking regrets what I could have done, what I should have done, why I didn't do it. When we lose something, um, or someone. Those regrets, we can see it as a blessing or a curse. If the regret just makes us depressed or angry with ourselves or hateful to ourselves or we want to take it out on somebody else, then that regret is dragging us down. But that same exact experience that we're dealing with actually see it as an opportunity to take shelter of a higher power, to take our spiritual lives very seriously, to learn lessons that can make us a much better instrument of grace, a much better person in our lives for the future. If we translate that regress in very positive terms, it can give us strength, it can give us hope, and it can make us grow. So it's important that we process these emotions in a very positive way. And for that we need some we need spiritual guidance. We need association with people, satsang, who will help us to transform these apparently negative emotions into something that can be very, very positive.
recently I was at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And this person was explaining. I was never an alcoholic, but I get invited to meetings sometimes. Just. <laughs> so I was there. And <clears throat> this man was just talking about the most incredible atrocities that he had done when he was an alcoholic. And all the regrets. But he was explaining what a blessing it was. Because now that he's actually you know, come out of it, all those regretful experiences, all the abominable things that he did, he's trying to translate it into an opportunity. He was saying, now I can understand what another alcoholic is going through. And I'm in a position more now to help alcoholics than anybody else could be because I know the way they think. I know the way they feel. And I know how they can get out of it. And I know how they can build a really, really happy, wonderful life for themselves. I've done it. I've seen it. So that's one example of how regrets can be transformed through guidance, through association, through prayer, and through our spiritual Answer your question. Don't let these things beat you down. Let them pick you up. But they only pick us up when we learn lessons and, and respond in a positive way. Just like when you put your hand in fire, it burns. Is that good? The pain of the burning is good because if it doesn't burn, you'll keep it in the fire and die. <laughs> yes, but because there's a burn, you take it out. So you're a little burnt, but you learned. I shouldn't put my hand in fire. So the pains of life could be actually very instructive and very enlightening if we learn good lessons. And help, help those lessons to deeply transform us in a positive way. We have time for one more question, and then um, there's this um, little ending to the evening. Uh, Champak, my dear friend from Long Island, has uh, prepared an entire treasure house of, of vegan cookies, and uh, anyone who would like one, Radhanath Swami will be happy to give you a vegan cookie. So after this last question, if you'd like to hang out and have cookies and maybe introduce yourself to your neighbor and get to know somebody you don't know this evening and make a friend, uh, that's a nice way to end off our evening. And then I hope you'll also come and join us every Tuesday at 8 p.m. here at Yuvamukti for our Sunset Gita gathering. I think I saw a hand over here. No? I'm curious if you could explain a little more why you didn't want to sleep in the bed or the carpet floor. Only because I really like sleeping in comfortable beds. I hope I'm not missing out on something. <laughs> from your point of view, I'm missing out. From my point of view, you're missing out. <laughs>
just because I was a little fanatical. Younger days. <laughs> but um, not exactly that. You know, I was living in riverbanks and living in caves for years, and I just loved it. It was just, it just felt so simple and natural. And a soft, cushy bed was something very foreign to me. It wasn't me. But I know some of the greatest saints that I've ever met in my life, much greater than me. They sleep in beds. <laughs> so yoga and spiritual life is not about sleeping on floors or sleeping in beds. It's, you know, that we get rest, and then with the rest we get, what do we do with our lives? That's what yoga is about. If you get good rest in a bed and then you do good things for seva, with the energy you get from that rest, then that's perfect. You know, if you're a selfish person who sleeps on the floor, <laughs> and if you're a very compassionate devotee who sleeps in a soft bed, then we're going to make great but if you're uh, a devotee who likes to serve, who sleeps on the floor, you can also make nice events. So it's not about beds or floors. It's about um, it's about getting good rest. It's <laughs> <laughs> need good rest. And then with the energy what we get from our rest, you know, what do we do with our life? And that's what's all. Does that answer your question? Because after all, you know, monkeys don't sleep in beds either. <laughs> Does it necessarily make them a monkey? I think it's important that it's the spirit of our life. Different people have different ways that could best facilitate that good spirit in life. That's what's important. Would you please join me in thanking Ronald Swanson for coming?